This is a last-minute addition uh, announcement for the Katie Halper Show. Since this podcast was recorded, I wrote a piece about the issue of Bernie Bros, and it relates to the issue of Left POC. So you can find that at Pace. That's HaceMagazine.com. And it's called Selective Feminism and the Myth of the Bernie Bro. And I'll be coming out with a part two of that piece soon. So just thought you'd be interested in it because it's so related to this episode. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. This episode is from a live taping we did of the Katie Helper Show at the Brooklyn Commons. We held it on Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day. We called it an anti-Columbus Day special. And if you want to hear our discussion about Columbus Day and about historical memory, you can do so by becoming a Patreon supporter of the Katie Helper Show because we've turned that discussion into a bonus episode. Just go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. But the discussion you are about to hear on this episode is about politics, the lessons and takeaways from the primaries, and the experiences of people of color on the left with our special guests, Wendy Muse, a PhD candidate in history at NYU. Wendy created the hashtag LeftPOC to draw attention to books, articles, films involving people of color well to the left of Democratic Party centrism. Our other guest was Anoa Changa. Anoa is an attorney in the greater Atlanta metropolitan area. Anoa has served as a grassroots digital organizer with Women for Bernie and African Americans for Bernie. She hosts The Way with Anoa, a weekly talk show and podcast. So I wanted to shift gears a little bit, but I think it's related to the question of uh, left POC. Fast forwarding a couple centuries, um, <laughs> do you feel like this this primary? And I know we're beyond that primary, but I feel like there is. A Are dis- we? Well, I'm not obviously, <laughs> and neither is Hillary. So yeah, what happened, guys? Oh my God. Uh, you know, I I wanted to get I wanted to keep the Affordable Care Act. He wanted to get rid of it. Cut to Bernie Sanders being like, I'm not going to get rid of it. I worked on the Affordable Care Act. I'm not going to get rid of it. Um, but I feel like there is this this new narrative that that's maybe been around for a while, but it really was articulated that the left leftism is the realm of straight white men and a kind of uh, privileged position. So I just want to know what you think of that. Let's hear from you, Anoa. A bit of a leading question. But as someone who I think identifies as as to the left of the DNC, what do you think? Maybe. Maybe, yeah. Uh, She said, pointing to her, what is it? Vote reparations reparations for president. did, was this is this like the same? I mean, is this the same it's always been for you, or do you feel like there was a kind of shift in the conversation? Well, I think that social media culture in general, which is where a lot of this stuff tends to really be problematic. I think social. Oh media wait, by the way, drink drinking game. Every time someone says problematic, <laughs> take a, take a step back. I think that you know it's it's it's, it's an issue, uh, particularly in social media spaces, because social media itself has just become so toxic and difficult and challenging. I mean. You know, if anyone, you know, saw what happened during, like, Gamergate and just, I mean, you know, what was going on in 2008? Yeah, people use social media and stuff like that. And I think maybe the Pew Research Center and a couple other places have actually, like, looked at the increase in our use and reliance on social media for political information, discourse, conversations, et cetera. But I really think what we've seen is this, like, 
we have these silos of people who have these huge, some, in some cases, huge platforms and ability to misinform <laughs> massive amounts of other folks by mischaracterizing and defaming the work of others, right? So like my family was like, why are you arguing with people on Twitter? Like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, well, these people then get on MSNBC and speak as if, you know, this mischaracterization is real life, is actually reality. Or they write a piece in Washington Post or Huffington Post or um, New York, the New York Times. New York Times. Lenny Letter. They write a Lenny Letter. <laughs> That's how Lena Dunham. Based on their, their, what they interpret that happens on social media as if that is the truth of what is actually reality. Most people in this room probably heard the term Bernie Bros. I'm actually someone who argues that that is not necessarily an inaccurate term. However, <laughs> however, you know, that is more representative of just these online spaces and how people interact. Because there are most certainly Hillary bros who act, yeah. Peter Gallo, who act mm -hmm. so <laughs> atrociously yeah. and, and, and attack people and their work and undermine what they're doing. You know, I do have a podcast, I write infrequently, but I don't have the same access. I know, Brandon, I have to send you, <laughs> I have to send you my pieces to get me finished. But we don't we don't have the same access to space, opportunity, and power, right? Like because Twitter, Facebook, this is how news is being created. This is how information and policy is actually being dictated. When people want to know why Katie or or or, or Nomiki Coates will say something about Neera Tandon, Neera Tandon runs the Center for American Progress. She's the one who helps people on a very high level in our society shape policy and pass laws. So when someone like that with that much power in our society is actually not only mischaracterizing work and what people are saying, but claiming that all of us who exist on the left are white men who are living in our parents' basements jacking off, that's really a problem. <laughs> Some of us are asexual. I'm <laughs> also very proud, you know, 36-year-old black woman who's living in the South, raising black children, dealing with very real issues, and having the erasure, particularly since my, you know, age group, my voting block, is like highly coveted by Democrats when they need to win an election, but completely disregarded any other time, right? So, so it's really problematic for all of us and Wendy, and we'll get to Wendy right now. Wendy has been someone, oh, you're problematic, right? Or another one. Wendy is someone who has helped steer the conversation back to a more rational and logical place and, and really, you know, highlight how we all have issues in the way we interact and relate and deal with these political spheres and conversations that are happening. But, but but bringing it back, the erasure that happens, because there are people who are way, I'm not even that left compared to a lot of folks who are organizing, whether in third party spaces, you know, or with, you know, uh, more communist leading organizations, things like that. Like, I'm not even that left, right? And my voice gets erased. So there are so many other people who are working on issues, who are organizing, who are teaching, who are leading, who completely don't exist because everyone's a white burning bro. That's why I, I identify as a Bernie bro. I do. I re, I, I reappropriated the term, but yeah. Bernie bros up here, yeah. Um, do you want to as a Bernie as a what a Gabe is a Chicano 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 dude bro? Yeah. I've never erased. I'm aware of that. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, you know I've only met um, the the most aggressive people we've ever had at shows even before we aligned with Bernie for. Uh, Dudes for Hillary. Yeah. So yeah. I've met more Hillary bros than yeah. Bernie bros. Yeah, Hill bros. 
I think Bros. maybe we should call them Hillary men because that's of course this this thing that Peter Dow, uh, who we can talk about later, and Tom Watson founded. So uh, could be a good. We need to come up with our. We are losing at the at the like the the, the sound yeah, yeah, yeah and the sound bites <laughs> thing. We we need like a Frank Luntz on our on our side. Um, Frank, I know you're watching. <laughs> There's no sound right now. Um, luckily, he subscribed to the, the podcast. Just kidding. Um, can you talk about your experience with that and also how that gave birth to a certain hashtag? Yes. Um, so throughout the primaries, um, I supported Bernie Sanders, and proudly so, even though I had problems with some of his legislation, which I wrote an article about that just came out this morning. So oh, cool. Where? I'm Progressive Army, um, for which I'm also a proud writer. Um, but I think that, you know, on a basic level in terms of policy, I saw Bernie Sanders as a potential option. I didn't see Hillary as an option for me to vote um, for her. And this was a long time coming. It wasn't something that changed all of a sudden with the primaries. It was something that was, if, if I go back and look at my uh, Facebook posts or like things that I had written in the past, I'd always had issues um, with neoliberalism and the way that she governed um, in ways that I thought tokenized people of color and sort of focused only on how much is our vote worth as opposed to how much are we worth as people. That's not um, fair. And also incarcerated people of color. Right. Uh, yes. Executed yeah. people of color. Yeah. 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 A lot of, I mean, a lot of, there's a, I, I've written extensively about my issues with her. Um, but I think on a historical front, what was frustrating about the primaries is that there were so many people who were saying, well, only white people are leftists, right? Being a socialist or being a communist is such a white thing. Like, um, it's such, it's not something that black people have the ability to do yeah. or the privilege to do. Or the luxury. Uh, right? lu yeah, it was, it, was a, it was framed as a privilege argument, which I found really frustrating because I'm sitting here doing extensive research here and abroad about people who are literally like fighting with guns and knives and whatever means necessary um, to defend their right to be independent countries or to have rights. And they're doing it under the communist flag um, and, and doing it alongside um, comrades who are from other parts of the world who are white, black. Indigenous, etc. So I, it was very, it was sort of odd to be enmeshed in this history, this very active history that was going on, and then having people saying, well, socialists are only white, and there's no such thing as a black socialist or a Latino socialist or whatever. Um, so I, in after the primaries were over, and it was just a full onslaught on anyone who was left and of color, I said, you know what, this is ridiculous. Let me start tweeting about it. And so for every time that someone like Joanne Reed, I don't know if I can mention her name. It's, yeah, of course. It's damn near an expletive at this point. Mm -hmm. um, but she, she and others um, took the opportunity of the 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 general to sort of say, everyone get in line. Everyone has to vote for Hillary, and anyone who doesn't is privileged and white and not doing what they're supposed to do. And I said, okay, let me go through history. Let me go through the books that I've read. Let me, you know, for exams and for my research and whatever, and start creating a list of black people, Hispanics, indigenous people, Asian Americans, Asians from Asia, right? Um, Arab, uh, Arab Americans, et cetera, who had worked on uh, left-leaning campaigns and had been active in left-leaning movements. And not just as members, but also as leaders, right? I think that's the most important thing. Um, so for me, it wasn't so much a question of, hey, we're here and we're visible and it's important to acknowledge that we exist, but also a matter of understanding how much leftists of color have contributed to the understanding of what we see as leftism, right? Mm -hmm. There are things that happen long before Marx, long before Sanders, long before Lenin, that you see in African indigenous cultures, in Amer the indigenous cultures of the Americas, et cetera, um, that would be considered you know, part of a radicalist, a radical tradition. And I think ignoring that does a 
grave disservice to our understanding of leftism and, and organizing in general. So that's why I started Left POC, um, which is something that I was tweeting under as a hashtag, but now has developed into an actual project called the Left Pocket Project. So Left POC Project, Ket Project. Left POC KET. Yeah, yeah, so Pocket. The idea right. is that you can pull up uh, let histories of leftists of color as easily as reaching into your pocket, pulling out your smartphone, and you can have access to those I histories. I love it. Like yeah. an app? Can we do an app? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm working on an app, actually. Oh, so all these things are coming. Um, POC will actually. And yeah. yeah. Well, actually. Yeah. So a podcast. Um, uh, we already have the Twitter page go up and running, but Facebook page, YouTube, and eventually I also want to do community discussions. Snapchat. Snap oh, I don't know about Snapchat, but because um, I want it, in, I want it permanent, right? I want yeah, it yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I know. Way to counter erasure, right? The one of the things that I think is really important too is, as someone in academia, I noticed that a lot of academics, while they have very good intentions, often have, there's a disconnect between them and the communities mm -hmm. that they're actually researching. And so, part of my work, uh, the, the focus of the work as well, is to focus on New York, for example. What are neighborhoods that have had activism by leftists of color? What have they done for their community? Are they still alive? If so, let's have them come talk. Yeah. If they're academics who work on the Bronx or Brooklyn or other places, instead of having people from the Bronx and Brooklyn to go to NYU or Columbia or CUNY and sit in these sort of stuffy places where everyone talks about um, you know, words that no one really uses in their everyday conversations, how can we reach out to communities and have, learn from them as well, learn from these histories and have it to be an interactive um, process. So that's what the project is. And really is about. unpack it. <laughs> right, right. Um, but I mean, I don't want, I don't want to hear the, you know, anything about, um, I don't know, praxis. No offense right. to anyone who's really big on that word, but the average person, and myself included, right? I'm, I'm not sitting around talking like about praxis every day. I'm talking about tangible things that we're doing and the way that we're doing it and communicating it in that way. So I think that's really important in the project. So. Yeah. That's what I think one of the great things about history is, is that it's not just, um, I mean, obviously, when it's when it's recent history and it's oral history, there's actually like a real activism mm -hmm. in just recording these histories, right? And just having people speak about them, exposing people to them, and it's also kind of a, a living archive. Um, but it is really political and activist when it's about Columbus too. Mm -hmm. But this is, I mean, I think it's really cool. It's such in such an immediate, on such an immediate level. Mm -hmm. um, Thank you. So yeah, great, love POC. Well, wow, I'm gonna help popularize that. Um, you, by the way, do people ever seem you're white or um, just like not paying attention to whatever? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've been called a white bro even though my avatar on Twitter right. is like of my face. And right. last time I checked, I don't look like a white guy, but I can you know, be wrong, I don't know. assumptions and that's problematic. Yeah, but, um, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I do. I have a picture of myself on my Twitter page, of my on my Facebook page, etc. So it's kind of hard to assume. But there were, you know, now that we have black Black Lives Matter activists who are paid by Russia, apparently. right? Oh, maybe I was gonna ask you how much you get paid. Maybe they just. I mean, I get paid a lot by Russia. How many you have no idea. Tons yeah. and tons and tons. Yo, I got my Soros money. It's one way or the other. You're either Soros bot or uh, you know paid by Russia, but. Or the Soviet Union, right? Because right. the Soviet Union still exists right, in yeah. some people's minds. And it's Putin. Uh, Putin right. is a big communist. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, you know, it's possible that they just assumed that I was, I was a, a plant or something, right. and that I was some white person posing as a black person until they like actually Googled me and saw like I actually, I'm a real person of color. But I know that there, there are others like. Um, 
Brie, Brianna Greyjoy, yeah. or Joy, yeah. Yeah. I always mix up her last name. But she's written pretty extensively about this, and she, on on a regular basis, is called uh, assumed to be white, even though her picture is right oh, there. Most recently. Most recently, yeah. She was told that she needed to find a black friend. A black oh, woman, by the right. A black woman was told that she herself needed to find black friends to learn about blackness. Right. I think she was trying to encourage self-respect. Like you need to become <laughs> friends with yourself. <laughs> and that was a white woman who it told her that, right? And progressive army too. Yeah, progressive army. Mm -hmm. And um And the week. And the week. Yeah. Yeah. Several yeah. different yeah. like like Bree's Bree's awesome. Um but but yeah, it, I mean and that's the level of racial that is happening. And, and and again, like, you know, again, a lot of us are it's just social media, it's not real life, whatever, but again, this is where narratives are being right. constructed. This is where news, this is where information, this is where power is being, you know, divided up and handed out to those who have the ability to influence millions through their platforms. That's what progressive media, independent media, such as, you know, we got Ben Norton in the back who does a lot of awesome writing and reporting. And, and, and Aaron, 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 but, but, but what's really cool about being like, really What's really cool that I appreciate about Ben, though, right? Because Ben is that stereotypical white Bernie bro. Air quotes, right? But ben That's why I asked him to bring his time. Ben is someone who spends his time and his platform and his voice actually lifting up other folks. Ronnie Howard is a friend of Colleen Mars. Like, he'll spend time doing that to make sure that the record is connected. Uh, corrected, and there are a lot of correct the record. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of people though who are who are like that who do understand, and 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 yes, only whatever portion of people actually use Twitter or Facebook. But again, when you're looking at the larger platforms, you're looking at major journalists right now. This is where they play. This mm -hmm. is where they exist. This is where they shop and swap information. You know, you'll have people running up and folks to stream like, oh yeah, we use their video in our cast, but we're not going to pay you for it, but we use it on our larger platform. There are things that happen all the time. Or, or you took pictures at this protest that you were at. Hey, we used it on CNN, but we're not paying you for it. So there's so much that's happen happening in this new economy that we, in terms of journalism that we're not really thinking and talking about. So when we're fighting on Twitter with folks, it's not just because we have big egos. And like, oh my God, I got to get that last tweet in. I'm really mad about people who have 280 characters and I don't. Oh yeah, how do we get But it really is about protecting you know, the work that so many people are doing and, and crafting narratives and shaping dialogue. Because there is a lot of great work that is happening all over the country. There are a lot of amazing people who are organizing and building. I mean, for over three weeks now, in, in St. Louis, mm. people have been protesting and organizing after the Jason Stockton trial. Most people didn't even know that was going on until Jordan um, Cherokee from TYT was arrested. Because um, St. Louis police um, had been targeting for weeks live streamers, citizen journalists, actual journalists who were paid by local city papers. Um, people were being harassed, made pepper spray attacked by the police, but it wasn't, it wasn't making any news, right? So, so this is the type of stuff that a lot of us see going on that we try to highlight and amplify through our platforms. 
And yet and still, we, we have folks worried about the stupid proxy war for an election that happened over a year ago. And I know, or, or happened almost a year ago. And yes, the country is really, we deal with, 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 with constant you know, attacks from the idiot in chief on a regular basis. But at the same time, we have an opportunity to really build something powerful and strong moving forward in these spaces. We have an opportunity to really help, you know, leverage our voice to, to support good work being done by good people all the place. Whether they're people like Wendy and her colleagues over here who are doing research and, 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 and helping to lift up the voices of, you know, marginalized communities, organized people abroad, or they're folks like, you know, uh, Gates. Gabe is funny, Gabe is hilarious, but super smart. Um, and Katie, who are using their platforms to reach and talk to, you know, people who are in spaces that would not otherwise be highlighted by mainstream media. So that's like a bigger issue when we talk about, you know, the, the story that was recently done about, you know, Facebook and the, the Russia BS and how we're focusing so much on Russia, 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 and not really looking at the way in which uh, voices are being restricted and actually curtailed or censored by government. Right? It's not simply that Facebook is randomly doing what it's doing. You have folks like Representative Adam Schiff who actually demand that we gotta do something about this because it's Russia that's being divisive. Russia didn't create racism and white supremacy in America. That has already existed, right? Russia is not the reason why Black Lives Matter was organizing or, or activists were organizing in Baltimore. It's actually activists in Baltimore who knew that that fake account was a fake account. But nobody pays attention to people who are actually organizing and building on the street. They're so busy focusing on, you know, slay queen, what happened? <laughs> so really talk to people and do what needs to be done. So, I mean, like. Did you see, though, Hillary Clinton when she was interviewed by, by Mary J. Blige? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Mary J. Blige sung to her. Uh, yeah, the Bruce Springsteen Bruce song, Springsteen. 41 Tops, yeah. <laughs> that was actually like, you know when, when you see, I mean, for me, it's like the times that I'm most sympathetic to Hillary, and I've always said throughout the whole, you know, primary, my whole life, I mean, Hillary is subjected to sexism. We don't need to divide right, those things up and pretend she's not subjected to sexism. She also hijacks feminism and uses it, right? But um, We're only here for the boys. Yes, we're only for the boys, yeah. Um, but it's funny. So when I see, like, you know, the, the, when I was at the RNC, I was, I was like, oh, yes, Hillary. I was almost like slay, yes, queen, whatever. But I was sympath. You know, it's like, obviously, it's misogyny, right? They don't hate her for the right reasons. But um, <laughs> not that I hate her. I'm critical of her policy. Um, but I don't, it's not like I don't hate her because she's like, you know, I I think she sounds good when she's being honest and critical. I just don't like her, the content. I wish she had more of those honest moments. Like I actually did fight through what happened, right? Even oh my gosh, you deserve a Nobel Peace Prize. Well, what happened, of course, is Hillary's book. I'll only yeah. be honest. I only got through half the book because life and work and stuff. Yeah. But but seriously, there were moments in reading her book that, in thinking about my work as a woman, and thinking about my work as a mother. Um, there were moments where I really wish those were stories that she's told on the campaign trail that might have appealed to more of us, right. you know, because because the thing is, like, there are a lot of people who held their home, they held their nose, because yes, yeah. girl, I guess I'm with her was a hashtag. A lot of people did show up because they felt that that's what they were supposed to do, because Trump was just yeah. so bad, right? Not because she was so what we wanted. 
right? I mean, like, I think back to 2008 when I chose to support Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. Like, I chose to support, support Barack Obama because she ran a racist campaign. Yeah. Plain and simple. That's when I, you know, when I switched, I was like, eh, whatever. I didn't, I didn't like his purple America stuff. I was like, come on. But, <laughs> um, pick a side. No, uh, when I, when I became a supporter, uh, Obama was with the, um, Jeremiah Wright stuff. Mm -hmm. When they, like, totally, what, what's the word? Race baited him and, mm -hmm. um. You know, she's like, well, I mean, you choose your family. You don't choose your family, but you choose your pastor. Uh, that's when I was like, forget it. Uh, well, I mean, really, really, the, the 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 worst part really was when um, she did an interview and made the reference to June, right. to June uh, assassination, RFK, yeah. Yeah, to, yeah. To the assassination of Robert Kennedy. And <laughs> when you have Peggy Noonan, when Peggy Noonan yeah. is going off on you about right. racial stuff, you know yeah. <laughs> But Happy Cannon was so upset. I appreciate how how difficult it is for people who are in the Democratic Party because the Clinton family, Clinton, her and Bill, are a mainstay in modern political culture. I mean, they are the most formidable political machine, political family in modern history, possibly even in you know political history as a whole, right? So, so I understand when you talk, when you look at the, 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 the time they took to build, they had to rehabilitate her because people were done. People yeah, Reed, for instance, hated her, well, and now there was a lot of work that was done and a lot of support that was built in helping people's campaigns and stuff. So this is that's also part of the reason why I'm not necessarily willing to toss people aside because they supported her necessarily yeah. in the no, yeah. if they're um, willing to yeah. do the work right now. Okay. We just saw Randall Woodfin went down to Birmingham, Alabama, um, a progressive younger oh, candidate yeah. who had the endorsement of our revolution, the local DSA, and several other groups. Um, I think maybe DFA as well. Um, and, but he had been a Hillary supporter, and yet he had all this huge backing from Bernie folks right. down in Alabama. But because he was willing to do the work, and he was willing to commit to the policies and opportunity that actually, um, you know, were going to benefit the community. So people were like, okay, you, you didn't support Bernie in the primary. Okay, well, you know, you're willing to work with us, though. And so when we talk about left POC and what we're willing to do going forward, because a lot of people did ultimately, you know, even if they did vote for Bernie Sanders, whether or not they were willing to come out for him. Um, I think Alicia Garza did it with a Black Lives Matter interview about how she did ultimately vote for Bernie in the primary, even though Black Lives Matter itself did not do any endorsement. Um, I think a lot of people, Angela Davis, I was surprised. Angela Davis even was like, you know, we need to vote for Hillary because in the no. primary? No, no, no. no. Oh, Trump okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Trump is so bad, you know? Right, yeah. And Angela's someone who supported third party efforts, yeah. communist, she's a communist, and things like that. So, so when we talk about left POC, there is either, we're either used to explain away why the black vote wasn't, or the Latino vote wasn't what it needed to be for Hillary to win, or we're completely discarded as a whole. Mm -hmm. And it, our politics, our experience, and our relation to these spaces within which we're in, so much more complex than that. Um, and we, we, we really need to stop looking at these superficial ways of evaluating you know, candidates and political dynasties and just political dynamics as a whole and really get down to looking at the people, the issues, and the policies and how we can do better. So you're saying you're either erased or blamed? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's pretty much what's been happening. Yeah. Should we open that for questions? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's you guys. Uh, we want to open up to audience questions. If you have any, and you can come up. Can you do you mind coming up here? This is Aaron's brother. In case you couldn't tell. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> do you need my mic? Hi. Hello. Long time listener, first time visitor. 
Um, so just a quick comment and then a question. So there, you were talking about, you know, when are kids ready to hear about genocide? So I'm visiting here from the west coast of Canada, Vancouver. And I recently happened to attend an information session about becoming like a teacher in the British Columbia school system. And one, they told, one thing they told us is that they're rolling out a whole new curriculum, which is explicitly about First Nations, residential schools, genocide, at all from kindergarten up. And so all teachers in the BC school system are going to need to get re-educated on how to deliver this material and, and also just about the pride of First Nations culture and all that. So, yeah, it seems that somewhere in the world people believe that kids can handle the truth. Yeah. So, right. I, I have to think that that could be possible here too. Not that we've remotely solved the problem. Or You can also take that out if you want oh, to take okay, the, cool. that out. So um, my question is this, and um, so it's not about Columbus, it's about the last topic you were talking about, and Bernie and Hillary and all that. And I guess I have this concern about asking it because I know that there's, it is like a valid thing about like, like I'm going to ask you to explain something to me from a, from from uh, the perspective of people of color, and I know that there's this sort of thing these days about don't make people of color like educate you white person about stuff. But I feel like since it's a question and answer session, since you're up on stage, and the question are like it seems like the most appropriate form in which I could possibly ask this question. So this is something I don't understand, and again, I'm an outsider Canadian. Although I lived, I used to live here for ten years. Um, this thing about this notion that, that Bernie was insensitive somehow to the racial optics and to racial discourse, whereas Hillary intuitively, instinctively got how to speak about race. From what I can see, and I just, I'm asking this question like in good faith. No, I want no, no, to no, no, I'm not laughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I really want to understand because from what I can see, I saw Hillary pandering. And uh, sort of his pandering—that's another thing. <laughs> She's my abuela, bro. By the way, you're looking for new jokes. I read when you said it takes a village. You can say it takes a village to pillage. Oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, from Honduras to Libya. <laughs> so uh, so I, I see Hillary sort of pandering and focus grouping her way to whatever new woke terms are going to attract the broad city crowd. Right. You know, cross uh, to them as Canadians and, and, and artists, but you know, you know what I'm saying. Uh, and then Bernie sort of talking about inequality and inequality and inequality and not using modern sort of newfangled lingo, but talking about things in a way that strikes me as pretty right on in terms of an analysis of what where inequality and power lies. So actually, I'd like to understand from the point of view of those who are who are dissatisfied, if you can get into this mindset, from the point of view of those who are in good faith legitimately dissatisfied with Sanders's rhetoric on race, what is that disconnect? And, 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 and where would he or progressives need to actually step up their game? Because it's, it's clearly an important thing. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the question. Okay, thank you. Just thinking about it from a, from a comparative history sort of perspective, one of the things that's interesting about the United States is that we tend to think of a lot of things through the lens of race, right? And that's been pretty um, intentional in a lot of ways. We don't talk a lot about class. Um, when you go to Latin America and Africa even, for example, if you look at um, you know, race-based struggles that are race-based, they always have a class component in ways that's very explicit that you don't see in the United States. So like, for example, in Brazil, which is one of my main um, focal points of my research, 
people who are protesting on behalf of black women, for example, there was a recent um, like day of, of Afro-Latina women, right? And part of their, their Facebook um, advertising, they talked about poverty. They talked about addressing um, the, the mayor in Sao Paulo's abuse towards people who were crack addicted. They talked about homelessness, right? They talked about austerity. So you see these very explicit ties between race, gender, class. So identity and class are not disconnected in the same way that they're very intentionally often disconnected in the United States. Um, in the Latin American case, though, there, we will sometimes see cases where you don't talk about race and you just talk about class, but usually people try to sneak it in somewhere or another, um, at least especially in recent years. So I think one of the things that was challenging for Bernie Sanders is that he often didn't make those connections. So you can talk about free college all day long, you can talk about healthcare, and all those things are things that benefit people of color disproportionately because we also happen to be disproportionately poor. But at the same time, if you don't address the, the sort of markers, the things that people are listening for, then you alienate them. Unfortunately, that's just the way it goes. It's sort of a PR thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas Hillary, Absolutely. unfortunately, I mean, for better or worse, um, she had a lot of black women and black people in general who were supporting her, working on her staff. And I know I can talk a little bit more about this on the like underground like political campaign side, but just as an outside observer, I felt like she hit all the marks um, she hit sort of the buzzwords and the buzz ideas in ways that Bernie did not. He never made those explicit connections, despite a lot of people saying he should. And you just, unfortunately, you can't just say Black Lives Matter and then college, free college and not connect the two and talk about where these things overlap. So I think that's where there was a lot lost in his campaign. Well, like, I think a primary example of, of, of kind of like where the disconnect was you know, and this is an amazing moment, you know, I used to I help do stuff with African Americans for Bernie, and when Bernie Sanders and his campaign team, um, I later became friends with his uh, head of African American outreach, Mike Farrell, and uh, uh, his deputy, deputy director of African American outreach, basically with the whole team, right? Um, so I later got to know a lot of those guys and women, um, awesome people. But when he went in October, ahead, I think it was October or November, ahead of the primary, he went to Baltimore, he went to Freddie Gray's neighborhood, right? And like Bernie does a tour of the community, he, he, he learns about food deserts, and he's, he's really making those connections. And it was a really great series of conversations he had with local leaders and pastors and things like that. And then he left. And then the campaign didn't come back until four weeks before the election, right? So like, there were these moments where he had these really great connections. I mean, he was the only one that actually showed, well, I won't take the only one, Martin Romano was in there as well. Um, so he was the only one. They showed up, they showed up to a conversation that happened in Iowa that a community organization group in Iowa actually organized that dealt with a whole host of issues, including economics, criminal justice, education. Like they had activists from all over the country come. It was a great diverse group of people. But it was only live stream. It wasn't something that was ever picked up in mainstream media. And it wasn't really something that his campaign really ran with to help embed in it. So Bernie actually did a lot of things that were right. He showed up for a lot of the right people, but it never got connected into the actual fabric of the campaign itself and built in, right? And so, you know, some people will say that, well, they never really thought they would make it that far, they never really thought this or that, and they were just trying to make sure they hit the major issue, which is fine. But when you look at the organizing side of it, and really engaging, because again, going back to my comment about the, the Clintons and their formidable political machine, 
they had already been helping and supporting candidates and campaigns, particularly in the South, right? Because those were the first primaries. When you look at South Carolina, when you look at you know folks who are running for office or thinking about running for office or who had got their start, they worked for one of the two Clintons in some way, right? They they had donations or sponsorship and support. I mean, part of the reason why people trash Linda Turner the way they do is because the Clintons allegedly showed up for her in what 2014 or whatever, right? I mean, right. there's actually love me and very dearly. Um, there's actually a whole other story about how the Democrats actually did her and terrible samples dirty in Ohio. That's that's completely different. But but oh yeah, we'll talk, we'll, oh, yeah, we'll talk yeah. about that. We'll talk about that later. But, uh, um, Nina Turner, just so everyone knows, is uh, was the a state state senator in Ohio, ran for lieutenant governor. Um, and one of the things that's always held over her head is the fact that Bill and Hillary, you know, tried to amplify her hope when she was running for office. And, but, 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 but and she switched from supporting the Clintons to supporting yeah, she's a part uh, Bernie. Of Hillary. Um, she's a part of the Ohio Democratic Party. And she, so I helped do an organizing training back in July for a group of Ohio organizers. And Nina Turner and Tara did come. Tara's a city councilwoman for a city background. And they did come and they did like a later training for people who were running for office. And they, they, they told the story basically about some of the, the issues that they ran up against, the two of them as friends, as colleagues, as people running for office with the local Ohio Democratic Party, with the unions, with different things. So it's not, you know, it's not simply just the fact that, oh my God, she was no longer ready for Hillary anymore and she decided to endorse Bernie. Like they actually, she told, she, the story she told us, they actually begged her not to endorse in the primary, just to, just to be silent. Um, and, and, and she had been rewarded with her, you know, brass bold endorsement of Senator Sanders with a huge outpouring of, of I mean, I guess she got offered chocolate donuts and, and, and water when yeah. she tried to deliver a petition to the DNC. But, but she has been trashed and slashed yeah. all over the place in so many spaces. But, but I say that to say that Bernie Sanders actually did hit on so many, like I supported him. Like, I supported Bernie Sanders because of my dad, right? Mm. My dad is from Brooklyn. My dad's a Brooklyn boy too. Um, my dad grew up in Wanda's projects, um, and and he had been listening to Bernie on back on Air American days. I mean, he'd been seats fan, all this. And my dad, you know, made a comment to me, and that's how I first started getting involved in stuff politically. My kids were getting older, so I'm like, okay, I have time to do do some stuff. Um, but but it was frustrating. I mean, even he had this great Brandon who works with us as well with progressive <laughs> But we we would try to connect with the campaigns like okay there's this really great piece about education that he talked about um, this should be something that becomes more about what you're talking about this would actually resonate with people and parents all over the place they didn't really talk about education in terms of K through 12 and, and the issue of you know racial issues in terms of property tax and so many things that actually affect our communities until they got to Chicago you know and they did that really great spot. With um, Troy Laververe, who's running, who's potentially running for mayor now, but 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 there were there were there were pieces that were missing, and part of it is because of who he had running this campaign. Let's just be real: Jeff Weaver was not the most you know multicultural, racially-minded person. I mean, he's really into comic books, though. He, he, you know, I didn't even know. I thought my dad was joking when he yeah, said he, he like runs a comic book. He's running a comic book store in DC. I had no clue. But but like. Even when you look okay, at some of the, when you looked at who was coming together, right? Like I remember trying to get friends in different primary, you know, states to to vote to, to vote for him, and I really had the hardest time getting people to agree to do it, only because they didn't think that he could win. 
Mm. Because the, it's Hillary Clinton, the Clintons, again, it's a name brand, it's already shooting, it's already fixed, the system doesn't matter, it's rigged, blah, blah, blah. So I he won twice. <laughs> no, yeah, Bill won twice, right? Right. So I, yeah. I think for a lot of us, when we even when we look at the fact, I mean, just think back to when Barack Obama was running in 2007, 2008. There, yes, he ultimately did have like overwhelming support, you know, for black voters, but initially he really did it because no one thought that America would elect a black man, right? Or he was, or when you have Andrew Young and other old guard civil rights leaders, he doesn't have the connection to the civil rights movement. He, he doesn't have the support and stuff like that. So, so there is a feeling amongst average, everyday working people that, that certain ideas are not going to be supported, so why should I even be bothered with this primary process that you're talking about? You know, particularly when you're in a community where it's gonna be a long line like we saw in Nevada. I mean, here in New York, you know, there are people that are moved from the rolls and yeah. other ridiculous things that happen. I mean, right now here, right now in Georgia, we have people who have been improperly um, removed from the rolls based on something that's actually a violation of federal law. So we have all these issues going on all over the place. I mean, these are things that have been going on, you know, not just since 2013 with the gutting of the VRA, but they've been going on before even that. So there's a lot of people who just struggle, like, yeah, you know, that sounds great, but I did try to vote for Jesse Jackson once upon a time, and we see how that turned out. Right. So, so like, to your question, you know, Bernie, I mean, Bernie's not awful, but one thing that really did actually do him really badly was when he answered the question at the black and brown or the brown and black forum. Yes. Um, reparations. Like about reparations. Yeah. And he and Hillary basically had the same yes. answer, except she knew how to finesse it, right? And she also she knew didn't to break the question. She, we, we had, she knew how to finesse it, but she also knew to mention John Conyers' reparations study bill, and that automatically got people thinking. Whereas Bernie was like, no, 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 da, 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 blah, 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 you know. But, <laughs> And the problem is that same roughness, that same, yes. that yeah. same rugged grandpa-ness some of us love about him is also what turns some people off as, you know, a disingenuity or a lack of concern for the yeah. condition of folks. So, I mean, I... I don't even think it's disingenuous. I think it's no, the opposite. No, no, it's, it's like over, it's, it's like a gruffness, people, like you said. But I yeah. think people will take it that way. But I, having a gruff granddad right. from Brooklyn, having a dad from Brooklyn who's just like real like straight to the point, yeah. like, like, ugh, whatever. Like, so, so it didn't bother me, but I know for a lot of people, it was just like, mm, no. And it was really easy to say Bernie's a racist because he might have misspoke. Mm -hmm. right? About to get, like the ghetto gas or whatever, yeah, which we can talk about. Which we'll, and the he, style. Might, he might have said yeah. And again, yeah. this goes back to the earlier point about social media and the way people have controlled narratives, right? Because one little thing would happen and it would get taken, and all of a sudden you see 50 headlines, yeah. I'm exaggerating, but you see a whole bunch of headlines about something that was taken out, even, even this post, post-election commentary about identity politics. Total lie. It's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's one it. line that is taken out of context and ignores the other two paragraphs yeah. of what he actually had to say. Yeah, so, so, the killer mic. They do. Yeah. Oh, so that's a funny story. So I actually did an interview with Joy, Joy Ann Reed before she went on MSNBC about the uterus moment. So if you're not familiar, Killer <laughs> um, Mike introduced um, the Sanders when they were in Atlanta. Yeah, Killer Mike is, is, is a rapper, he's an organizer, he's an activist. Um, he, you know, some people, I, I just heard an interview with Big Boy from, from Outcast joking about how he needs to run for governor. Um, but but what was really fascinating was, you know, he was introducing Bernie Sanders in Atlanta at Morehouse, you know, ahead of the primary. 
And part of his introduction, this is somebody who's a straight shooter, he, he don't pull up on me speaks. He quotes um, Jane, Jane Elliott. Jane Elliott. Mm -hmm. He quotes Jane Elliott basically saying about Who's an educator who wrote Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes. She did studies um, right. about bias and the way right. kids so are brought down. He's quoting her basically in a statement. And he explains that he's yeah. quoting her in this, in, this, in this sentence that he said, but basically about not voting with her uterus. This is the thing that she makes, and he's quoting her, right? And so that sets off all the alarms, you know, Bernie's sexist and surrogate for sexist and blah, blah, blah. Now, Shake Killer might have said what he said. I really don't know how to get into all that. But what's really interesting was, though, this was right after the entire gap with Madeleine Albright and uh, Gloria, Gloria Steinem about, you know, the, oh, they're just supporting Bernie because of the boys, or there's a special place right. in hell for women who don't support um, other, other women. women. Yeah. Cool tidbit, which you all, me and yours might know, Hillary Clinton did not support Zephyr Teachout when she ran against Andrew right. Cuomo. Of course, right. She supported Andrew Cuomo. So, also, or Donna Edwards. Can we or Donna Edwards. Or Donna Edwards in 2016 when Hayes Savon dropped a whole bunch of money against Donna Edwards yeah. uh, because his only issue is Israel. Also, so, really quickly, um, just Killer Mike didn't say voting with your uterus. He said um, it's not enough to have a uterus. Yes, yeah. which is that's which is yeah. Thank you so much. So what ends up happening is, as representative of African American suburbia, um, you know, Joy Henry at the time had a serious FM XFM you know radio show or whatever she was doing right before she went on MSNBC. She was a lot nicer then. And her politics were better too. She was a lot nicer then. But we had we end up I end up getting ambushed because I end up having to I end up getting asked to defend Killer Mike in that commentary. Um, but 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 I say all that to say that these are narratives that are being construed and used to shape stories in dialogue. And most of us are really busy. So we don't have mm -hmm. time to go past the headlines. We might be able to read an article here or there, but we might not have time to sit there and dig and do the research to actually verify. We're trusting the sources, right? The Washington Post is a, is a mainstay in American journalism that many of us have been taught for bench trustworthy. However, we have seen many examples of where that's not the case. They had 16 anti-Sanders articles in over the course of 16 Absolutely. hours. Same with the New York Times. We, the New York Times is like the pinnacle of journalism, allegedly. <laughs> and then we see otherwise, you know, in, in, in many instances. Oh, we have the script. Uh, right, but we have, we have, you know, now we have the backlash that we've had post-election, and there really is a clamping down on independent media sources because of fake news. And there are those of us present who do, you know, independent media journalism. Um, I, I say I do political commentary more than journalism, but but we do try our best to push back against bad narratives, against you know false news stories because it, it sullies the entire field for all of us. And what has been happening with this political field and this whole Russia's blame for everything, nothing was absolutely done wrong or Bernie destroyed all chances. Bernie has a lot of problems and issues, and but that's a politician, right? That, that's any political campaign. They have problems. Nothing is perfect. Can he improve? I really hope he's considering 2020. Yeah. Absolutely. You, guys have a you have to talk to him. Me personally, I hope he helps someone else yeah. in 2020. But regardless, I love Nina. <laughs> yeah, we, by the way, we had Nina on the show. We had Jane Elliott on the show. Killer Mike, not yet. We'd love to. But we also had Nando Villa, who was the guy who asked Sanders about reparations. Uh -huh. And what he said was that he was surprised by how kind of unambiguous, unequivocal 
Sanders was, but he respected him more right. because he was direct about it, as opposed to Hillary Clinton, who, as he said, tap danced yeah, around she did, the, she did the question. around the answer, but what, but what happens is that, that, that because that gets packaged. Yeah. They've invested, they've built the infrastructure, right. they've supported right. people, and so that gets packaged. I mean, you know, what, how are we feeling about WikiLeaks and Julian Assange? We did learn a whole lot about yeah. the way things work on the back end of some of these reporters who have reported and covered political stories and don't disclose, you know, their their conflicts. Right now, actually, in our race in Georgia, you had there is a there is a journalist with um, the Atlanta Journal Constitution that's actually working for one of the the, 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 the Georgia candidates who has not disclosed wow. any of his reporting about the race itself. Khalid, Khalid Kamau, who's a state, uh, who's a council, a city councilman in the, in the city of South in, in Georgia, South he actually said something interesting about, he, we also interviewed him, and he said that he, as a black man, gets to not kind of make those connections explicitly, and people get it, and how, for someone like Sanders, someone who's, mm -hmm. who's white, there is this extra thing that they need to do. His response is like, we need to run more people of color, which is true, but we also need to, I think, like there needs to be teachable moments about how people who are are not of color can can speak in a more. Like Mayor Kasim Reed, who, who did one oh. of the infamous correct the record hit yeah. pieces. I mean, he's a prime example of someone who you know all skin folk and kin folk, right? Like, like, like he's a he's a, he's a good example of that. Right. Um, also, uh, this is really funny. Khalid Kamara, remember he was when we interviewed him. He was talking about one of Bernie's failures was like, for example, on an optics level was that America video he did, um, the Simon and Garfunkel song, but uh, which was all white all the time. And uh, he, they released a campaign video that was to that song and it was white, but wasn't it also in Iowa? It's it wasn't Iowa, Iowa, but the problem was they rebranded it in the South. That's what it was, yeah. Okay, that, yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's a faux pas. take the time to do a so, promotion. But Khalid Kamara. Sure outcast. Yeah, I mean, right. really though, if you want to win this, yeah, song, yeah, you do some big great use and then Simon and Garfunkel as a rapper. But but he he said he's like you know whatever they did that 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 song by Neil Diamond. It was really funny, and we were like, mm, Simon Garfunkel. Yeah, he's like I don't know some white white singer. It was funny. Anyway, um, another we have more. Do you want to respond to that? Or do you want to? No, I mean since I already talked about it, but okay, I right, just right. one quick thing is that I think it's hard though for a lot of black candidates or candidates of color in general to make the economic connections because I think they are automatically expected to also talk a lot about race. Um, again, it's 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 a it's a byproduct of the American right. history, right? right? Um, but I, I think it's and also it's kind of dangerous. I mean, if you look at the history of leftist people of color that I study, a lot of the time when they start talking about breaking down these economic they powers, they get killed yeah. or they are infiltrated right. or their their groups are separated, broken up, destroyed. So I think that there's there's a real lesson from the state that says don't do this. And I think that's why a lot of people approach it with extreme caution if they if they broach the subject at all. So yeah. it's it's a tricky spot to be in, I think. Yeah. In ways that I think white candidates can broach both subjects without quite the same risk. They have the privilege, maybe. I mean, I think they're 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 not taken as much of a threat because they know the assumption is that they won't garner as many people of color in the first place. Mm. Or they're not, not by the I mean they I think right. there's this assumption just, that there's not a violent you know, the exactly the lack of danger or whatever. Exactly. Um any more more questions? And then yeah. And then I, I'm gonna. Then we'll be chilling and drinking, and people can come yeah, back. Yeah, this might. Here. I think this might be the last yeah. the last question. Lucky, sure. lucky you. 
then we'll, yeah. Cool. Nice to hear you all. Um, so I'm recently transplanted to New York from Charlottesville. Oh, and we oh. kind of dealt with the statue issue head on. Yeah. I guess my comment and question is about that. So we had one obvious foe, which was the right wing, the neo-Nazis, but they were really small in numbers. Our biggest foe in terms of numbers and numerically were the either liberals or progressives, if you want to call them, who in our government actually voted to keep the statues mm -hmm. and actually made an effort to run candidates against people who wanted to get rid of the statues. Wow, I know that. This guy, Michael Signer, who's the mayor of Charlottesville currently, he's really connected with the uh, sort of state government in Virginia, the, both the senators and the governor. So I mean, what, what do you do when your foe are too. I mean, there often are in all of these issues. So, what is your strategy for targeting sort of the moderates or the center or whatever when they're opposed in these battles? By the way, Padre Yatim, who we had last um, last I don't know, last live show, who is one of my top five favorite um, Lutheran pastor Palestinian socialists, who ran. He lost, but he came close to. to he did very well at city council. He's one, he actually opposed, he, he started highlighting, I didn't even know we had a General Lee monument here, somewhere here, and he, yeah. On a military base close Is that by. what it was? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, do you wanna, thank you. I mean, this is a hard question to answer, right? Um, again, I'm not a political strategist, so I don't know how quite to reach moderates to break down their biases about you're not friends with any. Just kidding. I'm friends with a lot, but it's, I feel oh, like, for you. I mean, my whole family, right, is sort of, a, they're Democratic voters. I think one of the things, though, that, that you can do is just propose an alternative, right? I think a lot of the time there's this belief that, like, you want to destroy something, but you don't have anything to replace it, or you don't have anything to sort of, um, to, not just to replace it, but you, you don't have any sort of content to fill the space. Um, and that just tearing it down is a pointless venture, and it's, it's not, it's not worth, it doesn't do anything in terms of the, the culture or the community. I think in some ways, if, if there's a way to counter with what monuments you could propose or what projects you would propose, um, positive things that would exist in its place that both moderates and like progressives and leftists would appeal, would, that would appeal to all groups. Missy Elliott. Um, <laughs> sure. um, I mean, I don't know a ton about North Carolina history, but I'm sure there are people there that all of these groups would sort of get behind and say, this is a person that we should, um, whose message we can advance or whose background we should promote. Um, but in terms of, in terms of, I, I mean, I, I, like I said, I'm, I'm sort of, to the, on the one hand, I'm really in support of taking down the statues, but at the same time, I think there are things that can be done simultaneously yeah, yeah, yeah. that are just as powerful, if not more so, for the lasting legacy of what it means to go against the people that the statues represent, right? right? And I think on, in that sense, a lot of moderates would get behind it. I don't think, I mean, even, even people who are run-of-the-mill Democrats are not like in favor of the right? To the best of my knowledge, yeah. I don't think anyone- Or like, openly. Right, oh, yeah. <laughs> right, openly, not, not to our knowledge, um, in the present. Uh, but yeah, that, I think that that would be one way, perhaps, to sort of bridge those gaps. In terms of legislating on it, though, I have I, I would not have any idea what to do in that case. I think you should have a museum and uh, say what they were apparently put up for, right. and then what the truth is about. That would be a great museum. Put them all yeah. together, one under one roof. Correcting the record. Correcting the record. Yeah. I actually, I, uh, yeah, I, uh, when I was in Spain, I remember saying to someone whose father had worked on this monument, because I, I made a documentary on it, I screened it, and, and he came up to me, because I was saying, I think it should remain, and it needs to, to be turned into a museum, because it's this huge edifice, whatever. 
And he was like, no, it shouldn't be. Uh, afterwards, he came up to me and I said, well, isn't it, what about like with the, with the concentration camps where they are used as these teachable didactic tools? And he said something, I was like, oh my God, he kind of crystallized a lot. He was like, well, the difference is that Hitler didn't want people to see them. So having a concentration camp as a tourist, as an educational destination and a tourist edu destination is in itself like um, subversive because you're taking something that they did not intend to be a monument and you're turning it into a monument of significance, right? Whereas with these, there's more work to be done because they were monuments, they are monuments. So they, you have to kind of re, there's, in other words, with, with, a, with the concentration camp, you just turn that into a monument to, to what shouldn't be, and that's it. You don't need to do more. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's a complicated thing, but it's, it's more work when it's actually intended to, to be a tourist destination or, yeah. Anyway, do you want to last words or last words? Or? Yeah, um, I think that what's really interesting is that we, we, we look at these issues and we, we forget about, you know, that there are all these other issues that are really actually directly impacting the communities that we say we want to represent and support. And the statues are definitely a thing. I'm pretty sure that those people who were running, you know, you know, against or about taking down statues probably had other really powerful things in their platforms and processes as well. I think what we really need to start doing politically better is finding ways to build space and community with actual community organizers and organizations and folks who, I mean, nearly half of the country didn't vote, right, last election cycle. And so many more do not participate in actual local elections. Um, when they had the election, because I, I will refer to Birmingham, because that's numbers I don't talk in my head that just happened, they had less than 30% turnout in the city for mayor election. And so, you know, it's what Bernie always says, right? When, 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 when we have high turnout, we win, progressive win, and when low turnout, we lose. And I think that if we start building more of the support, whether we, we were talking about Spain earlier, you know, they had rebel cities movement that has happened. We, I mean, that's similar to the People's Assembly process that was used in Jackson, Mississippi, with the Jackson Cush Pan plan in the election of Chopin and Tarnaguma, who succeeded, well, he didn't directly succeed, but his father had been elected mayor several years ago as well. Um, there are these processes to build that community capacity and help people become more engaged and invigorated in a process that is relational and not transactional, and that we're not simply being extracted and expecting organizers and communities to do all the heavy labor on top of the work they already do. That we're finding a way to help build you know, value in the process that has let so many people down for so long. So I say that to say that it's not going to be a simple, easy thing. They're going to keep, the establishment is going to keep running candidates against, you know, progressives, against radicals, because at the end of the day, they all have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo, right? Even with something that should be a no-brainer, like taking down Confederate monuments. I mean, the Confederacy were, were traitors. Why do we have statues to traitorous individuals. What was really interesting was when there was, a, there was an article a couple months ago in Charlottesville happened that the statues actually are identical in North and South, but they're just branded differently because there was a company at one point in time that just mass produced all these statues. 
And the Saxons in the South and the North, they actually look the same. Just some might have Confederate emblems and others might have Union emblems. That is the most American, <laughs> yeah, that's not the most thing I've ever heard. But, 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 but. It's but, a win-win. It is, but we also have already seen how people will spend more time building and trying to get that elusive moderate Republican vote. Yeah. Uh -huh. When in fact they're they're often losing trying to do that. I mean that's what happened in the Georgia sixth race just five minutes north of where I live. They also campaigns spent more time trying to get moderate Republicans, the the, the so-called suburban, you know, people who want to do better, who don't like Trump. I mean, and they lost. They actually left on the table approximately thirty to forty thousand votes in communities of color that 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 I think he lost by maybe about like ten thousand votes. They actually didn't knock on thirty thousand doors, mm -hmm. or something, something basically about that, right? So, so there is a way, and, and one of the things I give credit to that this entire Bernie mania phase, so to speak, is that the rise of grassroots organizing and political sphere that we have seen, people willing to step up with sometimes only enough to run off a couple of copies, you know, for their local area, willing to step up and do what needs to be done for organizations as we see groups like DSA coming online. Um, if you do know candidates, if anyone does know candidates who are running in, you know, looking for endorsements, I know much folks who work with Democracy for America, you have Democratic Socialist America, you have Our Revolution. You do have these different organizations that are coming on, but I think what's really important is that candidates, it's not enough that you've gone and knocked on doors in certain neighborhoods. You have to actually build with the people in those neighborhoods so they have the buy-in of the candidate that is running, that they have some commitment. And really, I'd love for us to, to start doing more of the Rebel Cities uh, of People's Assembly-type model to start getting that input and value or raising people up. Because if you're only having 20, 30% turnout, and we can actually get you know, our communities to really show up and vote, that's when we start turning things around whether we have the money or the resources or not. So. Well. Thank you so much. Uh, and Noah Tonga, you're a Noah Tonga on Twitter? Uh, Noah, the way with the Noah on the podcast. The way with the Noah on Twitter. Gabe underscore Pacheco. Uh, letter K, letter T, AK, so stupid. Letter K, letter T, ATLPS, KT Helps on Twitter. And Wendy Muse with an I, right? W E. Muse Wendy. Muse Wendy. Because I, I opened Muse Wendy, or Wendy Muse, and then I forgot my password. And now <laughs> it's an A. It's an so A. Yeah. It, it, it's a Russian Wendy's, bot. Yeah. Like you really are. Uh, <laughs> Muse like, Wendy spelled with an I. So Muse uh, W E N D I. And left POC. And left POC well. hashtag and the Twitter account. Yes. Um, thanks, you guys, so much. Uh, and use hashtag KT Helps Show. And we will see you at our next live taping. And by the way, Gabe has a weekly comedy show called Funhouse Comedy Wednesdays at um, Pete's Candy Store. It's always free. It's at 10 p.m. Come by. Yeah. They have grilled cheese sandwiches. Oh, it's we'll at in one. Williamsburg, in uh, Greenpoint, Williamsburg. Uh, it's in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, yeah. at Pete's Candy Store. Yeah. And subscribe to the Katie Halper Show on iTunes. Rate and review us, and on SoundCloud. And yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs>Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show. To access our bonus episode, which I think you will definitely want to hear, and I think this discussion with Noah and Wendy will have convinced you of how great they are to listen to and how much you're going to learn from them, please go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. 
Katie Helper Show is produced by Florence Burrow Adams with help from Joshua Bregman. Our theme song is by The Ballet. You can follow me on Twitter at KT Helps. That's the letter K, the letter T, H-A-L-P-S. And Gabe at Gabe underscore Pacheco. Use the hashtag KT Helps Show. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S-H-O-W. If you want to reach out to us or tweet about us, rate and review us on iTunes. Like our Facebook page, which is just the Katie Helper Show. Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show. 